0: The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is John 3, 22-36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and he was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, good morning, friends. Fun to be here with you. Dusty throwing the 4th and 5th graders under the bus like you guys wouldn't want to pick them up after church. I, bl- I believe better things about you. I know you're going to hurry over there to get your 4th and 5th graders. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, hey, uh, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, page 835. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath uh, your chair there. And um, if you're newer, uh, I'd love to give you a copy of one of these study guides. It just has the text of the Gospel of John. Uh, And so if you're new to the church and you want one of those, come see me afterwards, and I'd be happy to give that to you for the sake of this study. Um, If you're just relatively recently joining us, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We started uh, last month, and we'll continue all the way through Easter of next year. So we're just going to dwell in this fourth book of the New Testament. And if you're not familiar with sort of how the New Testament is laid out and how it works... Uh, It begins with the four gospel accounts, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to John. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, John is the most unique of those gospels. The other three gospels are very similar in their structure and in what they talk about. John has his own language, his own structure, his own way of uh, talking about and introducing us to the person and the work of Jesus. And so in some ways, John can be very profound and philosophical and almost hard to understand. But in other ways, John's very accessible and uh, invites us on this journey where his goal is to to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's the journey that we're on together with the end of chapter three this morning. Uh, My name is Bob, and I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to dive in. We get to think this morning together about something every one of us struggles with, but that we rarely, if ever, talk about. I'm talking about the sin of envy. When's the last time at your gospel community gathering someone said, you know, I just need you guys to pray for me. I'm really struggling with envying that person across the room. It's never happened, has it? (laughs) I've been in a thousand Bible studies. Not once have I heard someone confess the sin of envy. And yet, this is a basic human reality, is it not? Uh, it's It's the basis, in fact, of some of our best and most beloved children's stories. Like, think about the tale of Snow White. You know how this story goes, right? Snow White is the princess. She's born. She's really beloved by both of her parents. Then her mom tragically dies, and the king remarries a woman who's very vain. And the stepmother gets up every morning and asks her magic mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror regularly replies, you are, O queen. But then one day, she asks the question, and the mirror answers back, Queen, you are quite fair, tis true, but Snow White fairer is than you. And at that moment, the queen is filled with envy, and she basically hires out the murder of Snow White, which is a little bit disturbing that we're telling kids this story about murder for hire. But listen, we tell this story to children, and they get it, right? And you know why? Because every human being can relate to that feeling of envy. Well, this story at the end of John 3 has envy as the subtext. It's part of the dramatic tension of the narrative. Let's take a look together at John chapter 3, verses 22 and following. Here's what we read in the Scriptures. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, and this could be a little confusing, the John this text is speaking of is not the Apostle John, the writer of the book, but rather the other John that we've met in the narrative, the one known as John the Baptist, right? Now, if your name is John the Baptist, that's a name that's kind of like, Cedric the Entertainer or Chance the Rapper, right? Like the last part of the name is the thing you're known for. What do you do? I'm a rapper. What do you do? I'm a baptizer. Like John's whole reputation in the world is John, the guy who baptized a lot of people. This was his thing, right? Baptizing is what he's known for. And yet the text sets up the tension here because now Jesus and his disciples are also Baptizing, they're they're doing the thing that John is known for. In fact, all we know him is as John the Baptist. This is his calling card. So Jesus also is baptizing. And it says in verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Look, he's baptized. He, he's, doing, he's doing your thing. There's another baptizer. And all are going to him. So notice two things about what these disciples of John the Baptist say. First of all, notice sort of the, the drama of the exaggeration, right? Everybody's going over there to Jesus. Which we actually know isn't true because it just told us in verse 23 that people were still coming to John to be baptized. But the facts don't matter when you're envying someone, do they? What matters is what it feels like is happening. Everybody's going over there to Jesus. One of the things envy does is it makes us operate in kind of an all or nothing reality. And notice second the unwillingness these disciples have to call Jesus by name. They speak to him as they speak of him as he who was with you across the Jordan that one guy. Envy causes us to see other people as competitors. And when someone's a competitor, what you have a tendency to do is to erase their personhood, right? You see it as a zero-sum game between you and them, and therefore, if they win, you lose. And so there's a tendency to sort of de-personalize. So these disciples of John the Baptist are struggling with envy. That's that's the subtext of what's happening here. And so let's let's just put ourselves in their place. Let's just enter into the story in a similar fashion. Ask yourself this question. Who do you envy? Whose success do you resent? Whose life do you wish you had? Who do you have a hard time celebrating and rooting for? Get that person or that situation in the front of your mind, and let's just let it percolate and sit there as we work through this text. Let's take a few minutes to just think theologically about envy. What is it, and how does it work? What are the contours of envy? Let's learn, first of all, from the great theologian of the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas. He gives us this definition of envy. This is envy, properly speaking. When we grieve over a man's good, insofar as his good surpasses ours. The object both of love and of envy is our neighbor's good but by contrary movements, since love rejoices in our neighbor's good while envy grieves over it. Isn't that an interesting observation? It's it's a response to the same thing, but a movement in a contrary direction. When I love someone, I rejoice in their good. When I envy someone, I grieve over their good because they have good that I don't have. A writer named Drew Larson reflecting on this Classic definition of envy makes this powerful observation. Comparison in and of itself is not envy. In a strict comparison, one entity looks at another and simply notes the data. Your hair is red and mine is brown. You have a motorcycle and I have a bicycle. You like Pepsi and I like Coke. But envy happens when a third person enters and the dyad becomes a triad. You me and the person I wish I was. Envy is not merely about wanting something you don't have. It's about wanting to be someone you aren't. When we compare ourselves to someone else and fall short, we're simultaneously falling short of the person we imagine we should be. Envy is about our failure to live up to some version of ourselves. That's right on, isn't it? Envy is about our failure to live up to some version of ourselves. Someone else is succeeding in their career. Meanwhile, you're not. Maybe they're doing something right that you're not doing. There's some version of yourself that you are falling short of. Someone else's kids are doing well. Meanwhile, yours aren't doing so well. Maybe they did something right that you didn't. There's some version of yourself that you've fallen short of. Some other church or ministry is really thriving. Meanwhile, your ministry seems stagnant. Maybe there's something they're doing better over there. There's some version of yourself that you've fallen short of. See, the problem isn't comparison. We compare ourselves to other people all the time in in ways that are totally benign. What fuels the rise of envy is the rise of that third person in my mind. The person I wish I was. Right When Snow White becomes the fairest of all, that means her stepmother isn't, and suddenly a third person has entered the room. There's Snow White, there's stepmother, and there's the person stepmother wants to be, but now isn't. These disciples of John the Baptist aren't just comparing John's ministry to Jesus. There's a third person who's entered the conversation. There's Jesus, there's John the Baptist, and there's the version of John the Baptist these disciples had in mind. The ministry they envisioned, the success they desired for John the Baptist. What's the solution to envy? Well, the solution is to bring a fourth person into the conversation. Notice verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. In order to disempower this envy, John brings a fourth person into the conversation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says very plainly, I am not the Christ. How much of our envy, if we really go down and do the work in our souls, how much of our envy is rooted in a sort of Messiah complex? This feeling that we have to know everything, we have to be everything, we have to do everything, that if someone else is skilled or competent or winsome in a way that we're not, that that means something is deficient in us. How freeing is it to say with John the Baptist, I am not the Christ. See, because John understands grace, because he says, hey, no one can receive anything unless it's given them from heaven. Because he understands the nature of grace, John is content with who he is and with who he's not. He's content with the role he does play and the role he doesn't play. Author Zach Eswine uh, tells of a seminary professor who makes each of his students stand and say out loud in class, I am not the Christ. That's just a means of reinforcing this. And so we're actually going to try that this morning, since Dusty already got us going with sort of the football cadence. I want you to hear yourself say these words, all right? So let's say them out loud together. You ready? I am not the Christ. Really good, how'd that feel? Let's do it again. I am not the Christ. Don't you just feel better just by admitting that? You are not the Christ. Listen, I want you to hear me saying to you as your pastor, I am not the Christ. I am going to fail you. I am going to let you down. I probably already have. I am a finite, limited, fickle, flawed human being. I am not the Christ. And listen, you are not the Christ. And one implication of that is this. You cannot make someone else change. If you're a parent, you can't make your kids change. If you're part of a gospel community, you can't make the people in that gospel community change. If you're desperately hoping for change in a family member or a friend or someone you love... You can't make that person change. You are not the Christ. It's such a refreshing admission. And this is why prayer is such a foundational Christian discipline. Because prayer is leaning back into our insufficiency and our dependence and saying, we need God to do things we can't do. How much of our prayerlessness really comes down to just forgetting that we we are not the Christ? That if we just try a little harder, do more stuff, or have a better strategy, that we'll be able to make something happen in our own strength. Remembering that you are not the Christ does wonders to kill envy. Because that third person in the room, the person you wish you were, the version of yourself you'd like to be, that person has to bow the knee in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John responds to the envy of his disciples by reminding them, Hey, I already told you guys, I'm not the Christ. But his response doesn't stop there. Look at verses 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Many of you have been the best man or the maid of honor in a wedding, And you know that your job in that role is to affirm, to celebrate, to to make the first toast, right? You're there as a witness and as a celebrant and as the lead rejoicer, if you wanna think of it that way. If you're the best man and you have a crush on the bride, there's probably gonna be a fight. It's not gonna be a fun wedding, right? That's why the bride's ex-boyfriend usually is not in the wedding party if even invited to the wedding. Because we're not after competition here, right? We're after celebration. So John gives us this helpful image. He says, look, the friend of the bridegroom, that's who I am. That's who we are. We're just friends of the bridegroom celebrating Jesus' relationship with his people. And then he gives us this amazing statement. This statement that really sums up the entire Christian life. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And really, we're supposed to hear this statement on two different levels. The first level is just at the level of John the Baptist's ministry. From here forward, what's going to happen in the Gospel of John is that Jesus' ministry is going to increase. And John is going to step off the stage because he's played the part that God's called him to play. And Notice verse 24, which is, again, John parenthetically talking to the reader and reminding you, oh, in case you didn't know, here's a little background to the story. Verse 24, parentheses. For John had not yet been put in prison. Because John the Apostle is writing at a time when John the Baptist has become a martyr. Everybody who's read the rest of the Gospels knows what happened to John the Baptist. He was put in prison by King Herod and ultimately beheaded. And John's saying, oh yeah, this was back before John was put in prison. So what's fascinating about John the Baptist here is not only is he willing to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. The decrease is ultimately going to lead to his imprisonment and to his death, which ought to kill any prosperity gospel leanings that you might have. If you thought that following Jesus is always going to lead to an easy, comfortable, happy life, John the Baptist should dispossess you of that notion, right? John the Baptist loved Christ, served Christ, played his role, and ended up in prison. So we're supposed to hear this on the level of just understanding that John has played the role that God has put him in history to play, and now his his demise, his imprisonment, his death, ultimately is part of the story. Because from this point forward, John is handing over the spotlight and the stage and the attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. So that's the first level we're supposed to hear this on, is John's talking about his own ministry. But also, this is a statement of Christian discipleship, Christian maturity, Christian sanctification and growth in grace. What does it mean to grow up in grace. What does it mean to grow to maturity in Christ? It's just simply, he must increase and I must decrease. Like that's your vision for your life. It should be your vision for your life. If you're a Christian, what you want is less of you, more of Jesus, right? The, the things that are natural, you, you and your unredeemed state decreasing and Christ in you increasing and coming more and more to the forefront and being more and more reflected in who you are. So this is a vision of what we ought to long for for ourselves, that in our lives, in our relationships, in our character, I must decrease, Christ must increase. This is just a vision of Christian maturity. By the way, this doesn't mean that we should only hope for decline and demise, right? That would be a little bit depressing if that's what it said. This does not mean that no Christian ministry should ever grow. It doesn't mean that no church should ever grow. If it did mean that, then the book of Acts would contradict it, right? There's a healthy, godly ambition that desires to see the kingdom of God advance in the world, and so that wants to see churches grow and Christians thrive and new churches get planted. What this statement speaks to is the heart that's supposed to ground and anchor that. You don't read the New Testament and get any sense that the apostles and the early Christians were like, I must increase, right? What they wanted was just to see Christ worshiped and loved and treasured by more people and for his gospel to go forth in the world. And that should likewise be our heart and our longing. If you want to think about what's the insidious recipe here, what's the thing that some Christians, some of us perhaps, say without saying it, what leads to unhealthy churches and unhealthy leaders and unhealthy ministries, it sounds like this. He must increase, so I must increase. He must increase, so I must increase. If people are going to know Jesus, then of course they they need me. That's the recipe for a Disaster. So the disposition of heart that every Christian ought to have is, he must increase, but I must decrease. Less of me, more of Christ. So friends, here's what John is showing us. The solution to envy is worship. When I see Christ for who he is, when I admit that I am not him, when I desire for him to increase, then envy loses its power. You kill envy by worshiping Jesus, just like you kill any and every sin by worshiping Jesus. The solution is always see Christ, worship Christ, love Christ, obey Christ, honor Christ, revere Christ. That's what puts to death all the sin and selfishness in us. And so John concludes chapter 3 by giving us a bunch of reasons to worship Jesus. Uh, Like we talked about last week, most likely most scholars would say that the quotation marks end after verse 30. So verse 30 is the last statement of John the Baptist, and then verses 31 through 36 are sort of the, the editorial comments now of the Apostle John, the writer of the fourth gospel, giving us a bunch of reasons why we should worship Jesus, a bunch of reasons why we should say happily, he must increase, and I must decrease. Why we should rejoice in saying, I am not the Christ, but let me tell you about him and point you to him. A bunch of reasons to worship Jesus. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So first John says Jesus is worthy of worship because he comes from above. He's speaking here when he says um, he who is of the earth. He's talking about John the Baptist. As, as glorious a figure, as wonderful uh, a, a Christian example as John the Baptist is, he's of the earth. Jesus is from above. He's from heaven. He's come from the Father. So therefore, he is worthy of worship and adoration and praise. Verse 32, he, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true for he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus is worthy of worship, John says, because he tells the truth. He bears true witness. He gives true testimony. He utters, speaks the words of God. And he's worthy of worship because he gives the spirit without measure. This is interesting because all the prophets received God's Spirit in the portion and measure that they needed to accomplish the ministry God gave them. If you read about the prophets, right, it's the Spirit of the Lord was upon me to proclaim this word, or the word of the Lord came to me and I said, only of Jesus Christ as the Scriptures say, He's received the Spirit without measure. Thus He's worthy of worship and honor. And finally, Jesus is worthy of worship because he is loved and honored by the Father. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is worthy of worship because he's loved by the Father and the Father has given all things into his hand. He has been exalted and honored and esteemed by the Father and therefore he ought to be Honored and esteemed and treasured and worshipped by all of God's people. So this brings us back then to the uniqueness of Christianity. If these things are not true, if Jesus does not come from above, if he doesn't bear witness to reality and speak what is true, if he doesn't give the Spirit without measure, If the Father has not given everything into his hands, then you shouldn't believe Christianity. The message of Christianity is about the person of Jesus. And John is saying, this is who Jesus is. And if Jesus really is this, then he's worthy of worship and adoration and obedience and trust. John is testifying to you, this is who Jesus is. These things are true. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some folk religion. This is not some private truth that's important for a few people. This is reality. This is the way the world is. This is the truth. And because of that, there are only two ways to respond. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This doesn't mean that God is mad at you because you don't believe in Jesus. What it does mean is Jesus is the rightful king of the universe. And if you're unwilling to bow the knee to him as king, then you're already on the wrong side of reality. There's no way you can see and experience life. There's no way you can enjoy blessing and flourishing. You're living against the grain of reality. Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God is already being revealed in all the things that come into our lives and into the world when we live against Jesus as King. The invitation of the gospel is simply this. Worship the Lord Jesus. And John is showing you that that's the very thing that will actually set you free from envy and from every other sin. If the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed, John will say to us later on in chapter 8. And he's hinting at that now. What's going to set these disciples of John the Baptist free from envy? What's going to set them free is to see who Jesus is, to worship him, to celebrate the fact that he must increase and therefore John the Baptist must decrease. What's going to set them free is true and proper worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to set you and me free as well. So let's worship him together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we happily proclaim this morning that we are not the Christ. And we ask that you might increase and that we might decrease. So wherever that truth needs to meet us this morning, wherever in our hearts, in our lives, in our affections you need to increase, and wherever in our pride, in our insecurity, in our fear, in our weakness, we need to decrease, would you meet us? Would you bring your grace into our lives? Would you remind us of the good news of the gospel? And would you set our eyes on Jesus so that he might increase, so that he might receive all the glory and all the honor that he deserves, and so we might rightly step into the background and enjoy the role that you've called us to play, whatever that is, in our little corner of the world, living faithfully for you, pointing as John the Baptist did to the one who really matters. Jesus, increase your glory in our lives, increase our heart's affections for you, set our eyes on you. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.